Chapter 12 of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Anything You Can Do, Chapter 12. St. Louis hadn't been hit during the Holocaust. It still retained much of the old-fashioned flavor of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, especially in the residential districts. The old homes, some of them dating clear back to the time of Sam Clemens and the paddle-wheel steamboat, still stood, warm and well-preserved. Bart Stanton liked to walk along these quiet streets of an evening just to let the placid peacefulness seep into him. And, knowing it was rather childish, he still enjoyed the small Huckleberry Finn pleasure of playing hooky from the Neurophysical Institute. Technically, he supposed, he was still a patient there, more now that he had completely accepted Colonel Walther Mannheim's assignment. He was presumably under military discipline. He assumed that, if he had asked permission to leave the Institute's grounds, he would have been given that permission without question. But like playing hooky or stealing watermelon, it was more fun if it was done on the sly. The boy who comes home feeling deliciously wicked and delightfully sinful after staying away from school all day can have his whole day ruined completely by being told that it was a holiday and the school had been closed. Bart Stanton didn't want to spoil his own fun by asking for permission to leave the grounds, when it was so easy for a man with his special abilities to get out without asking. Besides, there was a chance—a small one, he thought that permission might be refused for one reason or another, and Stanton was fully aware that he would not disobey a direct request, to say nothing of a direct order, that he stay within the walls of the Institute. He didn't want to run any risk of losing his freedom, small though it was. After five years of mental and physical hell, he felt a need to get out into the world of normal, ordinary, everyday people. His legs moved smoothly, surely, and unhurriedly, carrying him aimlessly along the resilient walkway, under the warm glow of the streetlights. The people around him walked as casually, and with seemingly as little purpose as he did. There was none of the brisk sense of urgency that he felt inside the walls of the Institute. But he knew he could never get away from that sense of urgency completely, even out here. There were times when it seemed that all he had ever done, all his whole life, was to train himself for the one single purpose of besting the Nipe. If he wasn't training physically, he was listening to lectures from Dr. George Yoritomo, or from Colonel Mannheim. If he wasn't working his muscles, he was laying plans and considering possibilities for the one great goal that seemed to be the focal point of his whole life. What would happen if he failed? What would happen if he, the great, hyped-up Superman, found that the Nipe had only been working at half his normal potential? What would happen if that alien horror simply slashed out with one ultra-fast hand and showed Colonel Mannheim and all his watching technicians that they had completely underestimated his alien ability? What would happen? Why, Bart Stanton would die, of course, just as hundreds of other human beings had died in the past ten years. Stanton would become another statistic. 
and then Mannheim's Plan Beta would go into effect. The Nipe would be killed eventually. But what if he, Stanton, won? Then what? The people around him were not part of his world, really. Their thoughts, their motions, their reactions were slow and clumsy in comparison with his own. Once the Nipe had been conquered, what purpose would there be in the life of Bartholomew Stanton? He was surrounded by people, but he was not one of them. The people around him were not a part of his world, really. Their thoughts, their motions, their reactions were slow and clumsy in comparison with his own. Once the Nipe had been conquered, what purpose would there be in the life of Bartholomew Stanton? He was surrounded by people, but he was not one of them. He was immersed in a society that was not his own because it was not, could not, be geared to his abilities and potentials. But there was no other society to turn to either. He was not a man, alone, afraid, in a world he had never made. He was a man who had been made for a world, a society, that did not exist. Women, a wife, a family life? Where? With whom? He pushed the thoughts from his mind, the questions unanswered and perhaps unanswerable. In spite of the apparent bleakness of the future, he had no desire to die, and there was, psychologically, the possibility that too much brooding of that kind would evoke a subconscious reaction that could slow him down or cause a wrong decision at a vital moment. A feeling of futility could operate to bring on his death in spite of his conscious determination to win the coming battle with the Nipe. The Nipe was his first duty. When that job was finished, he would consider the problem of himself. Just because he could not now see the answer to that problem did not mean that no answer existed. He suddenly realized that he was hungry. He had been walking through Memorial Park, past the museum an old, worn edifice that was still called the Missouri Pacific Building. There was a small restaurant only a block away. He reached into his pocket and took out the few coins that were there. Not much, but enough to buy a sandwich and a glass of milk. Because of the trust fund that had been set up when he had started the treatment at the Neurophysical Institute, he was already well off, but he didn't have much cash. What good was cash at the Institute? where everything was provided. He stopped at a news vendor, dropped in a coin, and waited for the reproducing mechanism to turn out a fresh paper. Then he took the folded sheets and went on to the restaurant. He rarely read a news sheet. Mostly, his information about the world that existed outside the walls of the Institute came from the televised newscasts. But occasionally he liked to read the small, relatively unimportant little stories about people who had done small, relatively unimportant things, stories that didn't appear in the headlines or the newscasts. The last important news story that he had heard had come two nights before. The Nipe had robbed an optical products company in Miami. The camera had shown the shop on the screen. Whatever had been used to blow open the vault had been more effective than necessary. It had taken the whole front door of the shop and both windows, too. The bent and twisted paraglass that had lain on the pavement showed how much force had been applied from within. 
And yet, the results had not been those of an explosion. It was more as though some tremendous force had pushed outward from within. It had not been the shattering shock of high explosive, but some great thrust that had unhurriedly, but irresistibly, moved everything out of its way. Nothing had been moved very far, as it would have been by a blast. It appeared that everything had simply fallen aside, as though scattered by a giant hand. The main braces of the storefront were still there, bent outward a little, but not broken. The vault door had been slammed to the floor of the shop, only a few feet from the front door. The vault itself had been farther back, and the camera had showed it standing wide open, gaping. Inside there had been pieces of fragile glass standing on the shelves, unmoved, unharmed. The force, whatever it had been, had moved in one direction only, from a point within the vault, just a few feet from the door pushing outward to tear out the heavy door as though it had been made of paraffin or modeling clay. Stanton had recognized the vault construction type, the Voisier construction, which, by test, could withstand almost everything known, outside of the actual application of atomic energy itself. In a widely publicized demonstration several years before, a Voisier vault had been cut open by a team of well-trained, well-equipped technicians. It had taken twenty-one hours for them to breach the wall, and they had had no fear of interruption, or of making a noise, or of setting off the intricate alarms that were built into the safe itself. Not even a Borazon drill could make much of an impression on a metal which had been formed under millions of atmospheres of pressure. And yet, the knife had taken that door out in a second without much effort at all. The crowd that had gathered at the scene of the crime had not been large. The very thought of the knife kept people away from places where he was known to have been. The specter of the knife evoked a fear, a primitive fear, fear of the dark and fear of the unknown, combined with the rational fear of a very real, very tangible danger and yet there had been a crowd of onlookers. In spite of their fear, it is hard to keep human beings from being curious. It was known that the knipe didn't stay around after he had struck, and besides, the area was now full of armed men. So the curious came to look and to stare in revulsion at the neat pile of gnawed and bloody bones that had been the night watchman, carefully killed and eaten by the knipe before he had opened the vault. Thus curiosity does make fools of us all, and the native hue of caution is crimsoned o'er by the bright red of morbid fascination. Stanton went through the door of the automatic restaurant and walked over to the vending wall. The big dining-room was only about three-quarters full of people, and there were plenty of seats available. He fed coins into the proper slots, took his sandwich and milk over to a seat in one corner, and made himself comfortable. He flipped open the newspaper and looked at the front page. And for a moment his brain seemed to freeze. The story itself was straightforward enough. Benheim kidnappers nabbed. Stan Martin does it again. Series, June 3. Interplanetary News Service. 
the three men and three women who allegedly kidnapped ten-year-old Shmuel ben Chaim were brought to justice today through the single-handed efforts of Stanley Martin, famed investigator for Lloyd's of London. The boy, held prisoner for more than ten weeks on a small planetoid, was reportedly in good health. According to Lieutenant John Vale of the Planetoid Police, the kidnap gang could not have been taken by direct assault on their hideout, because of fear that the boy might be killed. The operation required a carefully planned one-man infiltration of their hideout, Lieutenant Vale said. Mr. Martin was the man for the job. Labeled the most outrageous kidnapping in history, the affair was conceived as a long-term method of gaining control of Heavy Metals Incorporated, controlled by Moshe ben Chaim, the boy's father. The details... But Bart Stanton wasn't interested in the details. After only a glance through the first part of the article, his eyes returned to the picture that had caught his attention. The line of print beneath it identified the picture as being that of a man named Stanley Martin. But a voice in Bart Stanton's brain said, Not Stan Martin. The name is Mart Stanton. And Bartholomew felt a roar of confusion in his mind, because he didn't know who Mart Stanton was, and because the face in the picture was his own. End of chapter 12